0: Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm here with um, designer Gregory Bonacera, and uh, he's co-director of Porcelain Bear with uh, Anthony uh, Raymond, who's an industrial designer. Um, welcome to the show, Gregory. Thank you, Stephen. I'll have to keep remembering to say Gregory rather than Greg. Greg. <laughs> uh, so when I do, please... promise I won't say Steve. Please, you can call me Steve. I'll just correct you. Um, look, you've been around for quite a long time yeah. in ceramics. You you graduated from Monash University in ceramics, correct? Uh, um, uh, where? Why ceramics? What was the appeal? Was there someone in the family who was a keen ceramicist?
1: It's yeah, it's quite an odd career path, really. It didn't really scream amazing income when I. Um, undertook ceramic studies in the 1980s so my degree went from 84 to 88 but prior to that in the 1970s my parents bought me a potter's wheel and we lived in ringwood and it was very sort of um uh, natural bush kind of setting. And my father was an upholsterer. He's, a re- he's retired now, although he still keeps, keeps working. Uh, so craft was very, um, it was very respected in my family. And buying me a potter's wheel was just something that they thought was healthy for me to do. It was actually at work with my hands. Um, so I think I was about 12 years old when they bought that for me. Can you remember the first thing
0: you made?
1: Oh, look, it was probably a bit of a cliche. It was probably an ashtray or something like that. Um, Not politically correct these days. Not politically correct now, but quite common then. So I I really don't remember the types of things that I made. I would make anything, really. I just loved. Uh, I think it was probably also a sense of immediacy about ceramics so you make something and then it's not long before you can actually see the finished glazed mm. piece uh, but i think it's just that affinity with the handmade that was almost genetic in my family
0: so you virtually started uh, under your own name gregory bonacera starting making ceramics
1: soon after graduating <laughs> I did, although I couldn't afford a kiln. So it was the late 1980s. I was, uh, you know, a recent graduate. I was given a welder by my dad and I, a whole lot of sheet, sorry, scrap metal from which was buried under the gravel of his driveway. And I started welding things like chairs and tables and so on so I really I didn't leave college and go into a job I left college and went into a studio and just started making things and it was the 80s I think a lot of people were doing well I knew a lot of people hmm. doing that type of thing any idea in, in mind of what of, you were going to do no <laughs> I thought I was just going to make beautiful things and, you know, make a living out of it, which I I did, but never a great living out of it. Uh, Towards the end of the 1980s, on the strength of the work that I had been doing in metal, I I received a grant from the Visual Arts Board of the Australia Council. I was 24. I was actually too young to get it, but they phoned me and said that by the time I was to, it was a studio res- residency in Bezzotso near Milan. And you had to be 25. And I had to be 25, but my birthday was not long before I would get on the plane and go. So they said, OK, we'll give it to you because you'll be 25 by the time you, you know, jump on the plane. Uh, so that was, uh, it was a bit of a... Um, bit of a feather in the cap for a a young Mm -hmm. person, you know, a bit of an an accolade for me to have scored. Uh, So on the strength of my mental work, I went to Europe, uh, ended up in London for three years after that. I I joined a group called the British and European Design Group. Um, Tom Dixon was in that group uh, there were quite a few other designers who were still quite active. Not, Amazing not, to be with Tom Dixon because he's kind of self-taught guy. He's now a big abs- name worldwide. Absolutely. And but obviously wasn't in the late 80s. In we the start- late 80s. That was the, the very early 90s. I think that was 91 when I, I ended up in London. So he would so have been starting his career there. He was very much in the early stages, still doing a lot of metal work. I think he was using a lot of scrap, uh, scrap metal, which was very similar to what I had been doing in Melbourne. So I kind of fell in with this group over there. I started exhibiting around Europe and um, and the UK, and then started getting a lot of well, not a lot, a few commissions in metal. In metal, and then I moved into wood. I really turned my hand to anything that I could. It was really more. Uh, See, so I, I guess this is what makes uh, the difference between what we're doing at Porcelain Bear and many other. Um, potters, for example, I, I came from a ceramics background, but I was never a potter. Uh, I was much more interested and in my heroes were designers. So I was much more interested in design. I guess I, I positioned myself much more as an industrial designer who specialized ultimately in ceramics mm-hmm. because I'll, I'll get back to that. But through the nineties, I, uh, I came back to Australia in, uh, the end of 93, the beginning of 94. and Pretty tough time to come back because there was a bit of a recession
0: going on in Australia.
1: There was, and I don't know how I kept busy, but I did. Yeah. <laughs> I started to specialise. I learned how to weld stainless steel. And there'll be... Uh, I still get people coming up to me and saying... I have one of your stainless steel vases because through the 90s I specialised in stainless steel and in a, in a sense almost worked like a ceramicist. In steel? In stainless steel. So I was making vessels that were stainless steel. They were made of uh, surgical-grade stainless steel, no iron in them, the, the, the most beautiful quality stainless steel and made these very sculptural vases, um, which... I guess you could probably compare in aesthetic to a sort of Clement Meadmore type sculpture. They were very robust and quite boxy um, pieces. So I did those through the 90s, but what that did was it brought me into computer-aided design in the late 90s. And it also brought me a little bit of money so I could buy a kiln. So, seduced by the possibilities of computer-aided design in the late 90s, I went, I found a place to study computer-aided design. I studied Rhino. Uh, Actually, I studied CAD key first, and then I studied Rhino. I don't think anybody knows what CAD key is anymore. Mm. It seems to have gone. But um, I studied computer-aided design in order to further my metal work and then I realized that it had so much potential with ceramics that nobody was doing and certainly nobody in Australia was doing it. So I started to actually, I bought my kiln and I started to 3D model these objects Using computer-aided design, and with the intention of going into ceramics, with the intention of actually then slowly getting rid of the metalwork, because,
0: because of, some of the pieces, I mean, I'm looking at a piece <coughs> that's sitting on a table in the showroom, um, mm-hmm. like antlers, quite yes. quite organic, I would say, comes to mind in some of the earlier work that kind of made a name for your for your porcelain.
1: Interesting, you should pick that particular piece. That's called the Millie Bowl, which is spelled M-I-L-I. And that was designed in 2003. So, very soon after the end of the 90s, when I started yeah. to study 3D modeling, computer aided design, that one was 2003. I made a handmade version of it first, and then we um, stepped it up to the computer aided design version. Uh, and it was very organic. It was.
0: Um, because, you know, kind of, it was, I mean, there are certain pieces in a designer's career that kind of does create that niche for you. And I would say that would have been one of those pieces that kind of really took you forward into the noughties.
1: I think so, yeah. It it, uh, it got reactions from a lot of people that I respected in the industry, and I, I had people coming up to me that, you know, uh, I had never spoken to before, and, and um, the feedback around Millie... The bowl was um, always very positive because it seemed like it was so unusual. Yeah, uh, for those so, people
0: who can't see it, it's it's almost <laughs> like antler branches, antler horns surrounding
1: uh, a bowl, encasing a bowl. Exactly. It it was nicknamed the antler bowl because people who didn't know its name called it the antler bowl, and mm. it's it's kind of subtitled. So it's almost subtitled the antler bowl. So that's been and,
0: and was it picked up by? Museums, shops, who picked it up uh,
1: or just clients? It was really just something that I sold through retailers because that was really my business model at the time was, was making, uh, small-time making, everything was handmade by me uh, in my studio and I had retailers around Australia who were selling, had been selling my metalwork uh, but then I introduced the porcelain and started to distribute that through my my um, retail channels. And from that
0: range, you've you know you developed hands, all sorts of almost found objects that you'd find in a curiosity cabinet, that type of thing. And uh, how do you put a collection together? What were you trying to say in the early days?
1: It was really, I think, more about pushing my own. Uh, aesthetic as and learning about what could be done with slip casting and computer aided design so it fascinated me and as with um you know having a potter's wheel when i was 12 i really didn't care about what the outcome was going to be it wasn't necessarily about making money it was about what uh excited me and what i felt excited other people because i didn't think that I did things. Sorry, I did things that I didn't think other people had seen before. So, Millie led into um, a short series of bowl forms, which um, the others were the architect bowl and the fruit tree bowl. Not in that order, actually, in the reverse. Uh, so, the architect bowl came next, and that was a bowl that, when you look at it in plan view. It's inspired by the way architects draw trees in plants. So it has a central hub or a trunk, and the branches radiate out from that. And then the architect bowl, which was bigger and lower and a little bit more technically uh, challenging, came after that. Um, these are all still uh, things that we produce, so many years later... Um, I think the architect, uh, sorry, the fruit tree was probably about 2005 and then the architect tech bowl was 2006 and we still produce them. Well, why not produce? I
0: mean, it makes sense if something's popular and you enjoy making it and it's something as unique
1: as these, you know, one off items. It makes sense to kind of just take them forward. Keep going with them. Well, the other great thing about that is that we believe, we hope that what we design and what we're putting out into the world are things that, are not fashionable, they're not trendy, they're not going in the bin. So, not, Gregory, you don't tend to design a collection. You, de- you design, you we, evolve with pieces. Well, that was me by myself. We now, as Porcelain Bear, which is Anthony and myself, do design collections. So um, if we, if you want to kind of fast forward to now, um, you have a few pieces of paper in front of you there that yeah. are collections. So, so now you've got... Um, Pillar like tables covered
0: in porcelain tiles, as one example, which can be used as pedestals, coffee tables. Um, That's one one design series. and yes. then you've also got these amazing which was recently shown at den fair which i was very impressed with uh porcelain chains
1: solid porcelain chains. which
0: yes. and i think you made the remark that your idea is to show people that porcelain isn't fragile that you can actually knock it together and so you've got these chains that look as if they're just white painted steel but they're actually porcelain links but you Almost, they can't chip. You can just knock them together. Why is it that we feel porcelain is so fragile? It's just something that we've grown up with.
1: It's an interesting point. We ch- that's a little challenge that we face quite often when we release something like a light or a table. Or you know the ch- the chain that you're referring to, which, which is, is called Enigma. It's a screen. It's a sc- it's intended as a screen. Yes, and that's that's all. You wouldn't hang it in a doorway and expect to walk through it all the time. But we make porcelain furniture, and so the first series that you were referring to there is called Metro, and it is it, clearly it has a little bit of a reference towards the Paris Metro. And I love Paris. The columns in the Paris Metro. It references the columns, the walls, just that kind of historic use of tiling, you know, that goes back to the 19th century or, you know, even earlier. We called it Metro because we liked that name a little bit more than the fast food related Mm. other name that Mm. we could have called it. Um, So... We do find that a lot of people look at our work and go, oh, I, I couldn't have a porcelain dining table. It would be so fragile. But I think that it's it's important to remember that we walk on porcelain every day. Most Many, many people have porcelain tiles on their, the floor of their kitchen. And when you drop something on them, it's usually the other object that comes off worst. Our bathrooms are full of porcelain. Nobody chooses a stainless steel toilet. Everybody, major railway stations, major airports, sorry, railway stations, they're not that important anymore. Uh, Airports, shopping centres, go into the bathrooms. There's a hell of a lot of porcelain in there that doesn't get broken and it gets mistreated a lot. Porcelain can be very delicate, but it can also be very uh, hard it is a really hard material, and so it's it can be quite robust so you 've got like clusters of uh, porcelain lights, yes, in one light, clusters of little porcelain
0: lights that literally hang hang from the one stem that 's right and the idea is
1: even if there 's a breeze and they rattle round a bit, that they should be okay they 'll be fine uh, We have an Instagram profile, and uh sometimes you know we use it to actually. In a sense, educate people about what we're making. So on our Instagram profile, I posted a video of me actually pushing my hand through that cluster of lights and basically running it back through the lights and letting them bounce off each other. And it's it's a uh, it's a really interesting demonstration of how hard and how durable porcelain is because these uh, these lights. To these diffusers in that light that you're referring to, which is called the Ido cf uh, which is cluster formation, literally just bounce off each other because how, it's so hard. Um,
0: how do you and Anthony work together? Who does... Do you work to design things up together or do you kind of just... You tend to take care of one set of areas and, you know, one area and Anthony kind of <clears throat> looks after production. How do you
1: tend to work as a team? It's not entirely defined. It's very liquid. We both work in all aspects of the business and we both oversee the other people that are now working with us in the business. Uh, In terms of designing things, we both design... uh, There'll be designs which are more his than mine and there are designs which are more mine than his, but we trust each other's voice on that subject very much and so we edit we're very much there as editors of each other's pieces and contributors to each other's
0: pieces. When, Gregory, when you say something's more his than yours, mm. what's something that would, if I picked up a light, that I'd say, well, that's more Anthony than Gregory, what, what does he tend to do that you don't and vice versa? That's a hard one.
1: I, I, I don't... It is a hard one, I it's agree. It's a hard one. Uh, because we live together as well after hours right. we we are partners in life and we're partners in work uh, we spend twenty four seven together and it's very hard to actually because there's a constant dialogue between us, I think it would be hard to actually separate the aesthetic. In a sense, we look at, th- we, we experience things that we see out in the world. We go to design exhibitions together, we go to functions together, and there's a constant dialogue. Yeah. So we're very much aligned. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that we could actually pick who does what, what is very typically Anthony and what is very typically me.
0: Um, Your showroom in Collingwood and Derby Street's just been redone and I thought it was interesting how you mentioned that even the walls were changed and really threw a whole different aspect on the lights that you've you know you said there was too much blue in the paint and it really didn't kind of work with the porcelain lights as as a backdrop and once you changed it to a very dark moodier color all of a sudden you had a almost a different product
1: it's interesting it almost sounds really obvious when you say it back to me like that and and i i sort of wonder why we uh chose those colors in the first place it was our very first showroom it was a way of us putting our collection together and displaying absolutely everything that we do it was also a way uh having our own showroom it was a way to present things that might not be able to uh, support a retailer markup Mm -hmm. on them as well so for example the palace table or the metro series we can't sell it through a retailer because it would be too expensive for people to buy so to have that little space was very important for us to present our work to the public but as you said we initially painted it in greys which we thought would be a good backdrop to porcelain but there was blue in the gray and it sounds obvious to us now but the blue was too cold for the porcelain porcelain our porcelain is quite ivory in color and we really like that ivoriness we we, you haven't changed really the color word you very rarely work in color we don't work in color it's it's more about form and it's about design i think color becomes more distracting color verges on decoration and i guess we don't really decorate Mm. i think we're more about um the design the substance of the design the functionality of the piece uh that sort of thing so we don't Really use colour except for blue, which is very traditional in ceramics anyway. And, do and you, um, Gregory, do you customise things? I mean, if, if <clears throat> we do consult with architects quite often, and we come up with customised versions of things for smaller projects. So we have our standard range, and we can tweak things a little when an architect comes to us or an interior designer comes to us and asks if we can maybe make this light with a blue band on it or something like that and we're happy to do that we're happy to work with architects and interior designers to do that larger projects of where they they need objects in the hundreds or the thousands Mm. we can then actually make a completely custom Mm. object for them because the quantity justifies all of the setting up that's involved in what we do Uh, when i say what we do is Uh, we specialize in a 300-year-old technique, which is mold-making and slip-casting. It's very much an engineering uh, method, mold-making. And so we have... There's there's quite a bit of setup before we get to the point where we're actually popping things out of molds and putting them in the kilns. We don't throw on a wheel. My wheel, my potter's wheel, was sold in 19... 81 or something it's got it's long gone we don't throw we only slip cast um it is an exciting area i mean what's so
0: lovely is you're still manufacturing everything in australia Australia. which is quite rare these days we are it's It's,
1: nice to know that
0: you know there's someone still left
1: there Uh, are a few of us and and i think It's nice to know that there are a lot of people who support the type of thing that we're doing. And there are a few other makers around who really champion the made in Australia uh, angle. Well, I think when it comes back to it, Gregory, I think if it's well designed and beautifully made, I still think there'll be a market for whatever you do. Absolutely agree. And, and it's, it's, it's about buying things that you hand down to your children and your grandchildren and things that don't end up on the hard rubbish pile. You know, it's, it's buying, it's about buying heirlooms which are made from the best materials. Uh, if we use metal, it's solid brass, for example. It's not plated. Uh, and porcelain is the best quality that you can actually achieve in domestic ceramics. Gregory, look, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today
0: and uh, I love your work. I've been following it for a a long time, even though I haven't spoken to you for some time. I still see it out there and I do think it's very tempting. So thanks for coming in. Uh, You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University. Thanks so much for coming.